Welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. Our Prime Minister-designate, Benjamin Netanyahu, has been spending the week in long and drawn-out negotiations with his future coalition partners. On the top of the priority list of one of those partners, the Religious Zionism Party, are several proposals for judicial reform. They want these changes to be part of the overall platform for the new government, and they want them to be binding. The most far-reaching proposal so far is for what is known as an override clause. Joining me here in the studio is a man who has been on something of a crusade in the past few weeks. It's been hard to find an Israeli media outlet that hasn't published or broadcast something in which he is loudly ringing the alarm bells about what passing this override clause would mean. Yaniv Rosnai is an associate professor and vice dean at Reichman University. Yaniv, welcome to Haaretz Weekly. Hi, thank you for having me. So Yair Lapid, Israel's outgoing prime minister, has said that an override clause would, quote, crush the court and crush Israeli democracy. Our president, Isaac Herzog, says the clause defies limitations on power and authorities that are now separate and balanced. Before you dive into your critique, can you first of all explain for us exactly what we're talking about here? Because in order to understand the override clause, you have to learn a little bit about Israel's non-constitution, right? You're a constitutional law professor in a country with no constitution. Can you explain why Israel has no constitution and what exactly we have in its place? Exactly. So Israel doesn't have a formal rigid document entitled the constitution, although originally it was supposed to have one. But for historical reasons, they have decided that we will have a constitution in stages, chapter by chapter. And throughout the years, the Knesset, our parliament, has enacted what we term basic laws. And these basic laws basically function as our constitution because they regulate the relationship between the branches and they protect fundamental rights. And the enactment of these basic laws reached a certain peak in the early and mid-90s with the enactment of two very important basic laws, two basic laws on human rights, human dignity and liberty, and the other basic law, basic law freedom of occupation. And it was somehow uh, complemented by a very important judicial decision in 1995, which we called Mizrahi Bank Decision, in which the Supreme Court has decided that these basic laws have a constitutional status, and accordingly, ordinary legislation of the Knesset cannot violate them, And if there is such a violation, then the court can, through its judicial review, invalidate such laws if they are regarded as unconstitutional. So for the, let's say, American audience, we can say our court exercises strong-style judicial review just like the U.S. So this is the current situation. Okay, and it's been controversial since the beginning, right? Uh, There have been people accusing it of being too activist, of giving the court too much power, right? Yes, throughout the years we hear... Uh, criticism by politicians accusing the court of being uh, too activist. Although I must admit that when it comes to invalidating laws, the court has been quite restrained. If we look over the past 25 years, let's say since 1995, the the Mizrahi Bank decision, uh, the court has only invalidated 22 provisions of laws for violating the basic laws on human rights. And I I think I, I need to emphasize something here. Even now, the Knesset can still violate rights. It can enact laws that violate rights or infringe fundamental rights. However, what is prohibited is a violation that is disproportionate, excessive, or not for a proper purpose. And when this occurred, and as we've seen 
only 22 times so far, the court has invalidated such laws as unconstitutional. So just to clarify, make sure I understand what you're saying, the Knesset can pass a regular law, the court can decide that that regular law violates a basic law, and therefore that law is struck down, invalidated, and there's no recourse for the Knesset, right? Exactly. Just as for the latter, I'm not sure there is no uh, recourse for the Knesset because our basic laws, unlike the U.S. Constitution, are not rigid. They are not entrenched. So basically, the Knesset can still amend a basic law or enact a new basic law with a simple majority of, let's say, 11 to 10. An ordinary majority can abolish basic law human dignity. Two versus one can do it in a day. So we have quite a peculiar and bizarre constitutional system which exercises U.S. strong-style judicial review, but our parliament acts more like the U.K. parliament, British parliament, where the, the, there is no rigid constitution. The override clause. What is it and how would it change or disrupt the process that you just described? So the override clause is basically a mechanism that is supposed to allow the Knesset to enact a law, even if it is unconstitutional. Either we think it is unconstitutional before a judicial decision, or even after a court said that such a law is unconstitutional, the Knesset would still be able to reenact it through this override mechanism. In other words, we are overriding the constitutional limits that are imposed upon the Knesset. That's the very idea. And what is now being proposed is that a majority of the coalition, 61 Knesset members out of 120, will be able to enact such laws that would override the basic laws on human rights. So the basic idea is to give the majority in the Knesset basically absolute powers. Absolute powers to enact any law whatsoever, regardless of how violative it is of fundamental rights, even the most basic rights, because our basic law human dignity is actually Israel's Bill of Rights. It protects the right to life, to dignity, to equality, to privacy, to liberty. So that is why I see it as a very risky thing. Everyone's talking about the 61 votes, but do you think an override clause would be somehow less terrible if it required a larger majority in the Knesset? So some academics object the override in its totality. They don't accept the idea that a majority, regardless of the number, be it even 80 or 90 Knesset members, would be allowed to infringe upon the rights of the minorities. I think that as a, as a principal idea, I, I agree with them. However, we live in a messy reality in Israel, and we have to somehow compromise. And if the Knesset will push forward a basic law of legislation, a, a part of our constitution that is now missing, a basic law that would regulate actually the relationship between the judiciary and the political branches, and would once and for all entrench the authority of the court to invalidate laws, then if the price to pay is an override, I think it is something worth thinking about. However, the design of the override is crucial. And here the numbers of the majority is one element, but an important one, because 61 is a majority that every coalition has. Nothing special is required. And if the coalition imposes its will through coalition discipline, this basically means that the leadership of the coalition, and again, this is not 61, it's perhaps five or six politicians, will be able to basically impose their will upon the entire Knesset, even to enact unconstitutional laws. Now, if we raise the threshold to something that is much higher, 
assuming, let's say, something around 70 or 80, or even include a component of the opposition, then it would be not impossible, but still more difficult for the coalition to enact such unconstitutional laws. I think this is a better solution because it would still allow the government to achieve certain policies that it desires, but at the same time, it wouldn't make it too easy to undermine and infringe upon fundamental rights. But the majority is just one component. There are other components to to remember that are important. But just to stay on the majority for a moment, because this is essentially the coalition in formation right now wanting to enact certain things immediately, they are pretty adamant on wanting the 61 number to happen in order for them to be able to take action right now. Yes, they they are pushing towards the, the 61, which to my mind will be a terrible mistake because I think that no government, be it a government from the left wing or the right wing in the future, will ever cancel the override because once you give the government the tool for absolute power, no one would give up such a such a power. The temptation is simply too high. And the problem with the, with the override sorry, is that it would actually legitimize the use of an override in order to enact unconstitutional laws. So people have been telling me, Yaniv, what are you so scared about? I mean, as I've just mentioned, one can cancel basic law human dignity in an ordinary majority. So why do we require 61 to enact laws that go against basic law human dignity? It doesn't seem to make sense. And I think this is precisely the problem. No politician would think of abolishing basic law human dignity because the political costs are simply too high. Just imagine what it would look like in the world if we abolish our Bill of Rights. But the override would do precisely that. It would allow Israel to keep on the books basic law human dignity, but at the same time, whenever it would be convenient for the coalition to avoid it or to undermine it, to enact a law through the override mechanism. And that is why it's so uh, troubling to me. So what you're saying is that the override would render our basic laws pretty much meaningless without getting rid of them formally, right? Precisely. These are big words, human dignity, freedom of occupation. Can you give examples of cases in which you think that uh, democracy would be undermined? Who exactly would be hurt by this override clause potentially? That's a great question because I think that everyone will get hurt. It's not particular minorities. It would influence every citizen and person living in the state. And I'll explain why. Now, during the legislative process, uh, every bill is being, in a way, scrutinized by the legal advisory of the Knesset. And if there's a bill that somehow undermines right, could be property rights or other rights, then he tells the politician, could you try and improve this bill so it would not violate the basic law? Just imagine now what would happen if we have this override mechanism. It would basically mean that Every bill that is now being enacted in Parliament, even if it violates certain rights, the parliamentarians would not try to make any effort to improve it or to mitigate in a way the violation of rights, simply because they can. We remove this sword of Democles above their heads. So I think it would affect basically everyone. Now, if you're asking on particular groups, I think that those who will see it most are women, who would perhaps suffer from various law and religion initiatives, for example, separation in in public spheres. I think that minorities who do not have strong representation in parliament, uh, the Palestinians, for example, uh, foremost, uh, but think also of prisoners, asylum seekers, all those who cannot actually affect the bills during the legislative process would somehow be affected by this all right. But again, if we look at judicial decisions from the past, consider, for example, a case from 2012 
uh, about uh, social security benefits. The High Court of Justice says you as a security services cannot take away benefits for people who have vehicles because this was the law. Once you have a vehicle, you're not entitled to certain benefits. Because you're too some, wealthy. <laughs> exactly, you're too wealthy. And the court said, no, this, this violates human dignity in a disproportionate manner. If you think someone is wealthy, just check his bank accounts, etc. You don't need to take away these kind of benefits. So this is just one minor example. But, but this example shows how this could influence each and every person, and especially those who are in need. Some say that an override clause would turn Israel into one of the weakest democracies in the world. Is that an exaggeration, or do you think it's true? I think it's, I think it's very much true, and, and I'll explain why. Israel is quite unique, and if you look around the world, many democracies have various mechanisms for diffusing governmental powers. Think, for example, of presidential systems, where the president has veto power, of federal system, where, where there are some vertical separation of powers mechanism, right, between the, the, the states and the federal system. Think of countries where you have a regional electoral system. If I'm representative of Bristol, I care about my own uh, uh, region that sent me, right? So this is another mechanism to block power. Well, think of all these countries in Europe, all those 46 states that are members to the Council of Europe. All of them are bound by the European Convention on Human Rights, and they are bound by the decisions of the European Court of Human Rights, not to mention all those members to the EU. Israel is the only country in the world without any of these mechanisms, and I failed to mention two houses in Parliament. So we have one house in Parliament that, is, again, is controlled by a few politicians. So if you have a homogeneous coalition, this basically means that you can do whatever you can, absolute powers. And that is why I think our democracy is more fragile and more vulnerable than other countries. So without a rigid constitution, with our narrow and limited Bill of Rights, without these strong mechanisms of checks and balances, in this context to enact an override clause, I think this would be a disaster. So people who say, look, Canada has an override clause, that's not so bad, you would say that the entire system has more checks and balances in it and therefore the override clause is less damaging than it would be in Israel? Exactly. I don't think we need to copy other countries and just take one component uh, without looking at the entire system. Canada is a federal system with an extremely rigid constitution and a Bill of Rights. Actually, the reason the override clause or mechanism was enacted in Canada was precisely to convince the provinces to adopt a Bill of Rights, a Charter of Rights. Now, if they would tell me, you know what, let's have an override, but first let's complete our Bill of Rights and enact a normal Bill of Rights like other countries, that's a different story. You take that deal? Well, it depends. depends <laughs> on how we design the override. But again, in Canada, even when you have the override, it has never been used on the federal level. And even that override does not apply on all rights. Certain fundamental political rights, for example, equality for gender equality, are out of the package, so you cannot override them. So... If we say, you know what, let's adopt an override clause that would not allow the parliament to override every fundamental right, and also we make sure that the majority is high enough, so it would not be too easy for any coalition to do that, and moreover, that the override would only be after a judicial decision, not preemptively in advance, only after the politicians have read a reasoned judgment of the court and maybe they will be convinced. Maybe we'll say, oh, let's change this and this provision. If that is the design, then it is something that we can think about. It would not be the end of democracy. But this has to be part of a, a larger deal to complete basic law legislation, perhaps to accomplish our, to complete our Bill of Rights, 
Uh, and then we can say, okay, let's complete all this, and then we can allow the parliament to have the, the final say in, in this constitutional dialogue. And what are the odds of that happening? Unfortunately, as it seems now, quite low, because the current coalition wants absolute power without giving something in return. Could the override clause potentially help our future past and future Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu find a way to avoid the consequences of his ongoing corruption trial? Or would it take other additional legislation for that to happen? Do you see any kind of scenario in which this override clause could assist him in getting legislation passed that would uh, that would help him get out of his legal quandary? Honestly, I don't see a direct connection. I don't think that the override is needed in order for Netanyahu to legally try to somehow get away of his criminal trial. There are other legal means, for example, adopting what we call a French law, basically an amendment to our basic law, the government, that would somehow pause the trial, doing the prime minister is serving as prime minister. Uh, but in France, this goes together with presidential term limits. So assuming they would say, let's adopt such a thing, and then we limit the term of the prime minister for two terms, then it perhaps would make more sense. Uh, but again, it has nothing to do with the override. I don't think that there is a direct link. So the override clause is your thing, your cause, your crusade. But there are some other constitutional uh, issues on the table taking place in these coalition negotiations that one could say threaten the balance of power, uh, democratic norms. And even today, as we record, the attorney general's deputies are appearing before Knesset committees to uh, express reservations about some of these proposed laws. One would allow the leader of the Shas party, Aryeh Derry, to serve in the cabinet despite the criminal uh, convictions that he has. Um, and another law that would put the Israeli police in control of our future national defense minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir. Do you also see these kinds of uh, moves as troubling and problematic when it comes to sort of the scope of uh, Israeli democracy? Yeah, that, that's a very good point. What these proposals now point to is first some kind of a misuse of basic laws. Okay, our basic laws are basically our constitution. They prevent appointing Derry as a minister. So what we do, we would simply amend quite easily, even before the government is established, we will amend that basic law to allow the appointment. This is a very personal law. Uh, but, but this is part of Israeli constitutional order. We've seen, you know, in the, in the past 10 years, Israeli basic laws have been amended more times than the U.S. Constitution in its entire <laughs> history. And many of these amendments occurred for narrow political interests. So the, this abuse or misuse of, of basic laws is something that we see quite a lot, and it's risky. But the more important point goes to the aggregated effect. It is a mistake to look or to analyze only the override clause or only the ways judges are appointed or only this change to basic law, the government. What we are about to see in this coalition is an aggregated and incre incremental efforts to weaken and get rid of all kind of uh, checks on governmental powers. And the problem is that I think... The whole is greater than the sum of the parts that we are about to see. And this is quite crucial. And, and, and this makes me worried because if we look abroad and we see how democracy dies in other places, such as Hungary or Poland, we never see one law that really confronts the core of the liberal values of the state. No, what we see is incremental use of legal means and constitutional means that slowly but surely undermine and erode the democratic order. And this is what makes me very much worried about because 
it is very hard to spot. It's not something that you can put your finger and say, wow, this is unthinkable. Because many of these issues, as you said earlier, exist in other places. Okay, override exists in Canada, the French law exists in France, etc. This is in the literature, this is known as Frankenstate. You take things and components from different countries and you create a monster. And I'm very much worried about this greater picture. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment and see what your response is that I'm sure you've heard a lot from the the right. What do you say when people call your views, your views anti-democratic? And they say the Knesset majority reflects the will of the people and that they're just trying uh, the religious Zionism party uh, and uh, allies in the Likud. They want to restore the balance between the legislative and the judiciary branches after the courts became overly activists and quote unquote stole democracy. Well, I think that there is a misunderstanding here of what democracy is. Without a doubt, majority is a necessary condition for democracy. Without majoritarian rule, there is no democracy. However, it is not enough. A decision of nine people to kill the tenth is not a democratic decision. Okay, in order to have real and genuine democracy, we must protect also some fundamental rights. We need to protect some fundamental values, such as rule of law and separation of powers and checks and balances. And... As I told someone a few days ago, you want, you want to be a democracy like any other democracy? I'm willing to just point any democ- democracy in the world. Just choose a country, any country, and I'm happily taking it, but in its entirely. You cannot just take one component that is usually the better. So I heard people saying, oh, let's take the U.S. style hearing for judges or judicial appointments. Yes, but in the U.S. you have a rigid constitution, and it's a federal country, and with separation between state and church. I don't think those people would adopt the U.S. model in its entirely. And that's the problem. They're doing what I call abusive boring. They only take the, the worst things from other countries. I mean, in regard to judicial appointments, I think I've heard you say in the past that you're even more concerned about the uh, proposed changes in the way that judges are appointed than you are about the override clause. Yes, I, I am, because the way that nowadays our, our judges are appointed to the Supreme Court is through a committee. It is composed of various representatives from the three branches. Actually, even you can say four branches, because we have members of the judiciary, members of the parliament, members of the executive, and members of the professional bar. And I think it's a very good deal this way. Uh, it is not totally politicized, like in the U.S., uh, so you could have both the professional uh, input into the nomination and appointment of judge and selection of judges, but also you could have some political representation, which is very important. My worry is that if we would now politicize uh, the, the this appointment mechanism, uh, then again we are removing any checks uh, from the government. And if, again, if we look abroad, the first thing that what populist leaders do when they're in power. We've seen it in Hungary, we've seen it in Poland, we've seen it in Venezuela, we've seen it in Turkey, is to threaten, to weaken, and if they can, to capture the court. And once the court is captured, it is much easier than to undermine the other institutions of democracy because then you don't have anyone who would stop it. And because Israel anyway lacks any strong checks and balances, the court is our final safeguard. That is why it's so crucial to protect its independence. As an international constitutional scholar, and you've written books and numerous articles on uh, on what's going on worldwide, not only here in Israel, do you see this phenomenon as part of kind of these 
populist winds of change that are blowing through the entire world? Or do you see what is happening now? This debate in which seems to be even today, you know, shaping up into a real confrontation, as we see the attorney general's representatives are in the Knesset, a real confrontation between the judiciary and the and the legislative uh, branch. Is this this crisis uniquely Israeli or do you see it as some sort of worldwide phenomena, worldwide trend? No, I think I think it is part of this world trend of populism and somehow backlash against liberal democracy, against universal ideas vis-a-vis more national or particularistic ideas, including in the United States right now, including the United States and elsewhere. However, here we have some unique features that do not exist elsewhere. So I've mentioned our constitutional structure that is uh, very much weak uh, compared to other places. But also now we have a prime minister that, as you've mentioned, is under criminal trial. And we also have not to mention the occupation. And there are some, I think, politicians who push towards the weakening of the court and any limitations of power in order to push towards some kind of an annexation. Can you talk a little bit more about that, how that could happen? Well, nowadays, think of just, for example, a law that was passed years ago, the we call it in Hebrew uh, arrangement law, but basically it was meant to take away private property of Palestinians. This was when this was legislated, all the legal advisors to the Knesset and the government said this is completely unconstitutional. We cannot defend it, and and the court did uh, decide eventually that this law was unconstitutional and invalidated. With the override, this law and others will be much more easily enacted. As I mentioned, you've been fighting the good fight. You've been everywhere out there making this argument in Hebrew um, uh, across the Israeli media and uh, in all kinds of committees and, uh, and forums and, uh, and seminars, etc. Have you seen an effect? Do you, do you feel like uh, the kind of pressure that, uh, that is being put, including a letter that, uh, that you uh, helped initiate in which pretty much every legal scholar in the country warned about the, uh, the dangers of the override clause, have you found that this campaign is uh, having any kind of effect on, uh, on decision makers so far? I think so, and I hope so. I, I, I've heard some voices from the politicians who say, well, maybe we need to take it a bit slower and, and contemplate upon things. But I think more visibly... It is the public, the public that had no idea what the override clause is. You know, it kind of reminds me Brexit, that a day after Brexit, people were Googling what is the EU. So I didn't want to reach the point where the override is enacted. And then a day later, all the members of the public then Google what the override is. It is too risky to, to, to let it move forward without being able to have proper objection. And recent surveys actually show that the majority of the public object the override. So the majority of the public don't want it. Uh, members of the profession, the academics from political science and, the, and law, the vast majority are against it. We've heard legal scholars uh, from America, for example, Alan Dershowitz, going against the override clause. You know, there's a saying when three people tell you that you're drunk, you better go to sleep. <laughs> so I think this initiative should go to sleep. Uh, being an American Israeli, I can't help, you know, thinking back a few years to some of the real confrontations between the Trump administration and the administrators in the Judiciary Department, that there was a real clash going on. I mean, it seems like we have the seeds of that going on right now. Do you feel that uh, the kind of crisis that's going to be created, if there is that kind of real confrontation between our uh, our Attorney General, who I guess could potentially be fired by Netanyahu, right, and our ruling coalition, um, is just as dangerous as what will happen if some of these laws are eventually passed. Yes, I think that if these initiatives, all of them will be pushed forward, I think it is inevitable to see some kind of a showdown 
uh, between the branches. I hope, I very much hope that we will not reach that stage. And if as much as possible, I would like to leave the court out of this game. If we can solve these things in the political arena, this is better. But inevitably, I think things will get to the court and then we would have to see what happens. Professor Yaniv Rosnai, thank you so much for coming on Haaretz Weekly. Thank you for the invitation. Todava. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thank you to my producer, Amir Factor, and to my editor, Shani Aviram. I'm Alison Kaplan-Sommer. Until next time, Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>